0: Good morning. Let's pray together. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Father, you are amazing. You are creator of the ends of the earth. You sustain us. You call us to follow you, and you equip us. Thank you for your word, As we look into it this morning, Father, I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would put our trust all the more in you, and that we would surrender our lives for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. If I were to invite all of us to go home this afternoon and write a brief description of what we each experienced here this morning, And then put all of those things together in in one volume, it would be an interesting thing because of so many different perspectives on what goes on here this morning. Imagine uh, each of us writing a page or two, and you read a page from one of the worship leaders who look very different from a page written by the nursery workers, Uh, or uh, someone who... uh, uh, like the sermon, someone who didn't. Someone who is a parent, someone who is a kid. I, you know, all of those perspectives would look very different from one another. But if we put it all together in one volume, called it August 15, 2022 at River Hills, uh, somebody might pick it up one day and look at that and go, huh, uh, was, was this really all about the same place on the same day? Uh, the accounts are so very different. That's how it goes, with different authors. In light of that, I would invite you to think just a moment about how very amazing this book is. Uh, This book is a collection, actually, of 66 books under one cover, written over a span of 1,500 years by over 40 authors, written on three continents, written in three languages. And yet, it has a singular theme in the glory of God that was ultimately revealed to us in his son, the Lord Jesus, who came to save us and who is coming again. And this book is without contradiction in all of its richness, and we get to hold it in our hand. That is an amazing privilege. I'm thankful for the rich literary variety that is contained in the Word of God. Over the course of my time here, over the past year and a half, we have looked at three different genre or literary types um, as we have gone through passages in, in Scripture. Uh, we have looked at the literary type of epistle, uh, as we've looked at the New Testament letters of Paul to Timothy. We have looked at the literary type of wisdom literature as we have considered the Proverbs together. We have looked at the literary type of gospel as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount. And today, we take up a fourth literary type, a fourth genre, and that is biblical narrative. We'll be looking at narrative in this new series in the book of Ezra. We're calling the new series Building a Community of Faith because that really is what Ezra was all about. Ezra is a history book, it's narrative. It's generally coupled with the book of Nehemiah, kind of like a volume one, volume two sort of history. I'm not promising we're going to get through both of them. Your search team continues to work hard to find your next senior pastor. But the two books together, Ezra and Nehemiah, talk about three movements of God in bringing his people back to the land after 70 years of exile in Babylon. The first movement is the rebuilding of the temple, roughly 538 to 516 BC. The key figure in that first movement is a man named Zerubbabel. Great name. Consider it for one of your kids. Next movement is the rebuilding of the community. We find that roughly 458 B.C., and the key figure there is Ezra, and that movement is covered in Ezra chapters 7 through 10. And then the third movement is the rebuilding of the city, the city walls, around 445 B.C. The key figure there is Nehemiah, and you'll find the account of that in the book that bears his name. So these opening books of, uh, or opening chapters of the book of Ezra, we're going to see how God's sovereignty relates to the exile itself and to the return to the land. Now, when we say God is sovereign, what we're saying is God is in control. He's in control. But how far do we take that? How comfortable are we with that idea? We like to give God credit for the good things that happen, but we seem to want to let him off the hook for the bad things that happen. How far then does his sovereignty extend? Well, we're going to see how that plays out this morning as we look at Ezra chapters 1 and 2. Let me start, though, by setting the stage with a little summary of where God's people are at the time of this book. There is a cycle that we see repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament, a cycle that God's people fall into regularly, and we face that same cycle ourselves today. Uh, We can begin that cycle most anywhere, but let's begin it with repentance. God's people come to him in repentance, and repentance leads to obedience. Obedience tends to produce blessing, and that leads to prosperity. But prosperity has a downside. It can lead us to be prideful. So the next step in the cycle is pride. God gives a warning to his prideful people before exercising judgment. Warning always precedes judgment. Judgment issues in hardship, which leads back to repentance. And the cycle repeats again and again throughout the Old Testament. Ultimately, God's people followed that cycle right into captivity. God's people were conquered in 586 BC by the Babylonians and were taken then into exile. That's where we find them today. God's people are in exile. They've been there about 70 years. But let's take up the sovereignty question right there. Did God just allow the Babylonians to defeat the kingdom of Judah and to take his people into captivity? Or did God raise up the Babylonians for that very purpose? Now, we'd probably say, oh, God would never cause such pain to his people. Really? What's the Bible say? Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 9 through 11 God says through the prophet Jeremiah, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction, make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. What do you do with that? God sends for the tribes of the north? God brings them against this land? Nebuchadnezzar, my servant? In fact, three times in Jeremiah, God refers to Nebuchadnezzar as my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. In our own lives, how far are we willing to take the sovereignty of God? That promotion you got at work, clearly the work of God. Praise him, you thank him for it, you tell your friends, God is doing something wonderful. How about the time you got fired? Was God sovereign over that part of your life? The long-awaited pregnancy, been trying for years, and now it's here. And you thank God and you tell your friends, how about the infertility? Was God sovereign over that time? The beautiful weather. How about the tornado? The miraculous healing. How about the cancer? How much in charge is he? That's the question we're going to look at today. I'll tell you, in my younger years, the sovereignty of God used to make me nervous. Is that your experience as well? A little uncomfortable thinking about God being that much in control. You know what it was? I didn't want God to have that kind of control. And so I just kind of denied it. But the longer I walk with him, the more glad I am that he is the sovereign one. That he is the God of the universe, that nothing happens to us that doesn't come through his hand first, and that even Satan has to get his permission before laying a single finger on us. We're going to look at Ezra chapters 1 and 2 today and see the sovereignty of God playing out. I want us to understand how his sovereignty extends to us, and I want us to rejoice that we serve the sovereign God of the universe. So, point one, because God is sovereign, his word will be fulfilled. Look at verse one. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Because God is sovereign, his word will be fulfilled. Now, what word are we talking about specifically? He mentions Jeremiah here. Ezra's referring to the prophecies of Jeremiah. Let's just consider a few places in the book of Jeremiah. You might want to jot these down. I'm not going to read them. But Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 1 to 14, this cycle we looked at a moment ago has led to God raising up Nebuchadnezzar as his servant to conquer his people, but he promises there a return to the land. Jeremiah 25, 1 to 14. Also, Jeremiah 29, a portion of which was read this morning. Verses 10 to 14, though, God reiterates his promise that his people will come back to the land. And then an interesting account in Jeremiah 32, verses 6 to 25, uh, Jeremiah is told he has the right of, of purchase of a piece of property in Judah as his people are being carted off into exile. And Jeremiah has such confidence that God will bring them back that he buys the land that has just been conquered. So, Jeremiah's prophecy. Now, not only Jeremiah speaks about this, but also Isaiah does. He foretold the return of God's people to the land. In Isaiah chapter 44, starting at verse 28 and going about halfway through chapter 45, God calls Cyrus his shepherd and his anointed one. He says, Cyrus will rebuild Jerusalem. And Isaiah's prophecy takes place 200 years before Cyrus. Now imagine yourself as an Israelite. You're you're living in the year 539 BC. You've been in exile for almost 70 years. There is no end in sight. You have heard, read to you, Isaiah's prophecy about Cyrus sending you back to your homeland But there's nobody by that name in power. The Babylonians are in power. It's the wrong empire that is exerting world domination. But in that very year, the Persian Empire conquers the Babylonian Empire. And the name of the man at the helm? Cyrus. And a year later, you're on your way home. Now, it's relatively easy to look back in history and see God at work. Our perspective gets clearer the further away we are from an event. It's harder to believe he'll act when you're right in the middle of a tough time. But we can have confidence that God is sovereign and he will fulfill his word. What word are we waiting for him to fulfill in our time? An event that the New Testament calls our blessed hope, the return of the Lord Jesus, the thing the church has longed for since Jesus ascended into heaven. What's the delay? He's giving us time to fulfill our mission. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He is giving us time to get the word out. Before Jesus returns, we've got work to do, a mission to fulfill. Do you have friends? Neighbors who don't know him? Do you have family members who don't know him? What are you doing to take advantage of the time that God gives you before he returns and it's too late for them? We need to take our mission seriously because God is sovereign and his word will be fulfilled. Second point, because God is sovereign, secular agencies will serve him. Again verse 1 In the first year of Cyrus king of Persia that the word of the Lord might by the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing because God is sovereign, secular agencies will serve him. Why did Cyrus send the captives home? With instructions to rebuild the temple and with lots of money to do it? Verse 1 tells us, because God stirred him up to do that. Cyrus' policy was, was different from any Ruler uh, that the world had really seen up until that point. His policy was to bring a great diversity of people together under one administrative system while maintaining a tradition of respect for their local customs and beliefs. It was unheard of at the time. Cyrus himself professed an allegiance to Marduk and the other Babylonian gods, but he allowed the followers of other religions to rebuild their places of worship so that they could call on their gods and ask for what? Long and prosperous life for Cyrus, of course. That sort of religious tolerance was unheard of at the time. Probably unexpected by the people. So how do you explain it? Verse 1 tells us, God stirred up, the spirit of Cyrus. God stirred him up to rise to power in the Medo-Persian Empire. He stirred him up to conquer the Babylonian Empire. He stirred him up to return the Israelites to their homeland. And note, all that without converting him. Cyrus was the most powerful man on earth at the time, but he was just a tool in the hand of of the sovereign God of the universe. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It's like he picks up a garden hose labeled Cyrus and points it in the direction of Jerusalem. He does that as easily as you or I might water our flowers with a garden hose. He picks up a hose labeled Joe Biden and says, I think I'll water those flowers over there. Picks up another hose labeled Vladimir Putin, or another one labeled Kim Jong un, or another one labeled Xi Jinping. They're tools, they're garden hoses in the hand of a sovereign God. It shouldn't surprise us. God is God, He is still sovereign. So, what's it take to move President Biden's heart? What's it take to move Congress? What's it take to move the Supreme Court? Listen, they will serve God's purpose whether they know it or not. We serve a sovereign God. And without that understanding, I would be in despair when I look at what's going on in the world and in our nation. But I trust in God's sovereignty, and I know that he is at work. I believe people are seeing the futility of the secular solutions that are, that are coming out all around us, that, those solutions that get us nowhere. I see a, a hunger for God growing in people's hearts. Pray that God's people will seize the moment. If God can use Cyrus, then God can use Congress. If God can move the heart of a pagan emperor to do his bidding, he can move the heart of an American president. Are we praying for those who are in authority over us? 1 Timothy 2 for a moving of hearts under the hand of God. Are we praying for the president? Are we praying for Congress? Are we praying for the courts? Because God is sovereign, secular agencies will serve him, whether they're aware of it or not. Third point is this. Because God is sovereign, his people can have confidence in him. All those years when the Israelites were longing to go back to their homeland. All those years of waiting. We can imagine them ready to go back. We can imagine them wondering when God would make a way. And then God says, now. God had moved the heart of a pagan emperor to send his people home. Now in verse 5, God moves the hearts of his own people to go. Look at verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Same words used of Cyrus. God stirred him up. God stirred them up. There are a couple of important lessons here. The first is this, until God says now, no amount of human effort will accomplish a task. When we planted the church in Wausau, we rented space in a union hall for 10 years. To say it was uncomfortable would be a bit of an understatement. My clothes all smelled of smoke. Uh, I was kind of the de facto chaplain of the labor unions for 10 years. We wanted to build. We... Uh, We're convinced that we could do so much more if we had a building of our own. We started a building fund within a couple years of our startup. We tried to get the thing together. We had committee meetings. We had drawings of a potential building. And for some reason, it just didn't happen. And then it happened. I remember a turning point as clear as anything I could ask for. I was conducting what we called an orientation class, kind of like a pre-membership thing where we go through things about the church and about what we believe and invite people at the end of that to decide if they want to become members or not. And one of the things we had done was we had given out a spiritual gifts inventory and we were sitting in a living room going around the circle, each of us sharing our top spiritual gifts. And it was like God was saying, do you see what I'm doing? I'm putting my team together. There were people in that room that night who would be instrumental in the launching of the building program. God, in his perfect timing, after 10 years of waiting, finally said, now. And today there's a thriving church meeting in a wonderful facility. It's gone through three expansions and has planted campuses in three neighboring communities. Now, let me ask you this. Were we operating in the flesh all of those 10 years when we were trying to get something off the ground? I don't think so. We were trying to be faithful to what we believed God was calling us to. We were convinced he wanted us to build. We just didn't know when. And until God said now, we couldn't do it. Because God is sovereign. Sovereign. So if the first lesson is, until God says now, no amount of human effort will accomplish a task, the second lesson is this. When he says now, we need to be ready to move. When I was in the Army, I had the privilege of serving in the 101st Airborne Division. It's a pretty distinctive unit, part of a rapid deployment force that was prepared to go anywhere in the world at any time. When the commander said, now, we needed to be ready to move. So we had bags packed. We were ready at all times to be deployed. It's the same for us as a church. We're on a mission as well. We need to be ready when God says, now. Our mission is to declare God's greatness, to grow in love for him and one another, to serve one another and our community. Declare, grow, serve. He calls us to be ready for whatever God calls us to. To be faithful in the tasks at hand that we know he's given us, but but to be ready as well for the next step in the unfolding of his plan for us. There's great excitement in being a part of what God is doing in the world. We don't want to miss it. Now, Were there some people in the land in Ezra's time who wouldn't be going on this trip to Jerusalem? There were. There were. Not all of them were called to go. Verse 5 says, then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up. To rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. God stirred up the spirits of some, not everyone. Not everyone was a part of that. Not everyone would be going. Not everyone was called. But look at the list of people in chapter 2 sometime. I didn't have Emily read that this morning. I wanted to go easy on you. The names of those people are, some of them, pretty difficult But you think about that, each one of those names is significant. Each one of those names reflects a life given to the service of God, responsive to what he called them to do. But when you look at the names there, what you find is they were largely priests and Levites and temple servants. God had a purpose in who he called to go in this first phase. And we'll look at that next week, but suffice it to say for now that they went to reestablish worship, our highest calling. So not all were called to go. Some served God's purposes by supporting those who went. If you look at verse 6, it says, "...and all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, goods, beasts, costly wares, besides all that was freely offered." These are people who weren't called to go, but were called to support those who went. There are others, I'm sure, who did nothing to support them, and still others who probably opposed the whole thing. There's always a range in any project. But the key for each of the people then, and the key for us now, is to determine what God has called us to do. When we determine the calling of God, we can go in confidence because God's word will be fulfilled and even secular agencies will have to cooperate with the sovereign God. Your elders are convinced that God has given River Hills Community Church a mission. That mission is summed up in those three words I mentioned a few moments ago, declare, grow, serve. Declare the greatness of God. Grow in love for him and for one another. Serve one another in our community. And you're on the threshold of an exciting new chapter as you respond to the mission that God has given you. And you can thank and trust a sovereign God who is at work as you accomplish that mission. Let me uh, share a story that I shared at the Leadership Summit in June. Tina's second cousin, Kay, struggled with infertility for years, and so she and her husband Whit adopted and raised two children, and they were now living in the context of an empty nest, and at age 46, Kay found out she was pregnant, age 46. Together with her fears about the health of the child, she was facing the single biggest disruption of her life. I remember her saying, This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. She sincerely believed that. Well, Kate gave birth to a healthy baby boy, and we had the privilege of watching him grow up. Luke is now a pastor in Minnesota. He is the joy of his mother and father. And Kay said, This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. The worst thing that ever happened to her became the best thing that ever happened to her. Was God sovereign over those years of infertility? He was, absolutely was. Was God sovereign over this unexpected pregnancy? Yes, he was. How do we interpret an event that caused Kay such incredible anguish and led to such inexpressible joy? What's it take for us to become comfortable with the sovereignty of God? More than that, what's it take for us to rejoice in the sovereignty of God? I'll tell you, the issue is faith. Do you need to be in charge, or are you satisfied to let God be in charge? How much are you willing to turn over to his control? The answer to that question depends on how big your God is. My God is creator of heaven and earth. He's the one who put the stars in place and calls each one by name. He holds the universe together by his powerful word. He ordained all the days of my life before I existed. He is infinite in knowledge, in power, in love. Do I think for a single moment that I can do a better job running my life than he can? He's God. And I can trust him, and so can you. Are you trusting him today for whatever it is you're going through? Maybe you're experiencing a time of great blessing right now. If you are, thank him for it. It came through his hand. Maybe you're experiencing a time of hardship right now. If you are, trust him. It came through his hand as well. He's got purposes to accomplish in the midst of that that can't be accomplished any other way. Trust him. He's sovereign. His word will be fulfilled. Even secular agencies will do his bidding. And his people can have confidence in him. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father we look to you as the sovereign God of the universe, the one who is in control, the one who is too wise to ever make a mistake, too loving ever to hurt us. And yet you use circumstances that we sometimes don't understand to accomplish purposes that go beyond what we can see. And so, Father, I pray that in those times when we don't understand that we would trust, that we would know that you're at work, you're working out your eternal purposes, and so we can rest in the assurance that you're in control. And so Father, I pray that you would increase our trust in you, pray that we would surrender control of our lives to you and be responsive to what you would have us do as we follow So, Father, use us for your glory. Let your people shine for you. Let us make a difference in our community. Let many come to faith in Jesus because we sought to use the time that you give before he returns. So help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.